We're looking at that chapter, verses 1 to 13 today, 1 Corinthians 5. And we finally arrived at the really interesting part of 1 Corinthians, the part where God's word begins to address a lot of fascinating issues and controversial topics like church discipline and suing people in court and sex and marriage and divorce and speaking in tongues and prophesying, etc. And, and these are some of the topics that caused me to think, you know, it would be good for us to go through this book and to tackle all of these practical matters that have to do with how our faith works out in different really nitty-gritty areas of our life. I remember being in college and reading these chapters with my friends, and we were so curious and, and interested in what the Bible had to say about all these things. And I remember one friend and I had a little joke because we noticed in our Bibles at, at that time, I think it was the old 1984 New International Translation, and the topic heading for today's passage was expel the immoral brother. And so we turned that into a little chant when someone in our fellowship did something which we thought was sketchy or, or caused us to feign fake outrage, right? We chant, expel the immoral brother, expel the immoral brother, which was just us being silly college boys joking around. But of course, in retrospect, today's passage is deadly serious. It's about what we call today church discipline, and it's shaped the way that churches and whole denominations have handled situations where someone in their midst has had an affair or stolen money from the organization. This passage has impacted excommunications and shunnings. And so this is serious business, and it's really important that we handle a passage like this well and that we understand it properly. So what I'd like to look at with you this morning is the answer to four questions. Um, I didn't give you my notes, so I'll try to prompt you about these. Um, first, what was the scenario uh, that was going on among the Corinthians that prompted Paul to write these instructions to them? This is um, an important sort of question, especially when reading New Testament letters, because before they were written to us, they were written to address specific people facing specific situations in the first century. And if we're going to understand how they're God's word to us, we've got to first understand what the point was for the first recipients of the letter. Otherwise, we're prone to misunderstand, since our culture is so distant from theirs, what the letter is saying and what issues are being addressed. And, and so one of the first things you learn if you go to seminary about studying the Bible is this rule of thumb. We can't know what it means to us today until we first understand what it meant to the people back then. Okay, second question that I want us to look at is, what are Paul's reasons, what rationale does Paul give for giving the instructions he gives in this chapter? What's Paul's purpose? What's his heart in this? And then third, what do we learn here practically about how Paul tells them to handle this situation? What specific guidelines does Paul provide? And then finally, fourth, how do we apply all of this to ourselves today? Okay, so let's dig into the, the first question. What was going on in Corinth that prompted Paul to include this chapter in his letter? Paul's clearly responding to a report that he's received, right? Verse 1, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. Paul has heard some news 
some a juicy tidbit of news, a, a, a disturbing bit of news about what's going on in Corinth, and now he's going to address it. What, what has he heard? He's heard that a man who is part of the community of followers of Jesus in Corinth is sleeping with his stepmother. This woman is or was married to the man's father after his own mother was. And she's probably not a follower of Jesus because Paul doesn't address her at all in this. But what we don't know for sure is what's up with this man's father. Likely he's died or he's divorced this woman. Now, what we have to remember about marriages back in that day is that often an older man would marry a much younger woman. So it's quite possible that the man that Paul's addressing in this chapter and this man's stepmom are very close in age. Maybe she's a pretty young thing, a trophy wife that his father had married later in life. And then somewhere along the lane, the uh, line, probably, he, the son, and she, the stepmom, fell in love. But here's the other reality Paul refers to. To sleep with your stepmom was a huge taboo. It was considered outrageous, scandalous, and wicked in almost every culture, including the pagan culture that the Corinthians are living among. In fact, Roman law, which governed the Roman Empire, according to it, both the son and the stepmom, if convicted by the law, could have all of their prophecy confiscated or property confiscated, we'll get to prophecy in chapter 14, uh, their property confiscated, and they could be banished to an island for this. This was a serious crime, and it was a grievous sin, which begs the question, how is this scandal even going on, let alone among God's people? And the likely answer is, we don't know for sure, but it's quite likely that this man and maybe the woman are very rich and very powerful. That they're part of the small elite upper class in Corinth, just like people in, in Hollywood or among the rich and famous, maybe like the Kennedys or for many years until recently, Jeffrey Epstein. People like this seem to do and get away with things that the rest of us never could. And so maybe that's what's happening here. And so maybe because of this man's money and power and influence, all the lower class, working class people of this church maybe are timid to do anything about this. Maybe this man funds the church. Maybe they meet in his house. We don't know for sure. Now, in verse 2, Paul says that the believers are proud. And what we can't tell, despite the, the translation that was read this morning, which made some um, interpretive judgments that other translations handled differently, we can't tell if they are proud because one of their members is doing this, or if they are proud for other reasons, despite the fact that something like this is going on in their community. But whichever it is, one of their own is doing something that everyone around them knows is evil and illegal and scandalous, and they're doing nothing about it. And Paul calls them on it. Notice, even more than Paul goes after the man doing this, Paul goes after the whole community for letting it happen and doing nothing about it. He holds them all responsible, and he addresses them all, and he tells them to deal with it. 
Now, given the cultural stigma of, of what's going on here, for them, this would be a bit like today if sexual abuse was going on in the church and we knew about it and we were doing nothing. And I realize there's a difference in that sexual abuse, there's a perpetrator and there are victims, where with this couple in Corinth, it's two consenting adults. But the similarity I'm getting at is, is in the stigma in the broader culture. Everyone agrees this is terrible. And so Paul tells them four times in this passage exactly what they need to do. Verse 2, shouldn't you have put out of your fellowship the man who has been doing this? Verse 5, hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, and we'll talk about what that means. Verse 11, you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, etc. Do not even eat with such people. And then verse 13, expel the wicked person from among you. Harsh words, right? Well, why? Why deal so harshly with this person? Paul gives two rationales, and this leads to the second question. What reason does Paul give? What reasons does Paul give for the actions he tells them to take? The first rationale in verse 5 is that the person doing this, the rationale is that they might be saved. That they might be saved. Paul's motivation is not punishment, but redemption which is why church discipline might actually be a bad phrase to use in connection with this chapter. When I was in my 20s, I had two good friends. They were friends with each other. They were both women about my age. And one of them, who I'll call Sophie, uh, got a boyfriend. And they got serious. And before long, they were talking about marriage. But my other friend, who I'll call Jessica, had a bad feeling about this guy. Um, Jessica didn't think they were good for each other, he and Sophie. The boyfriend didn't share Sophie's interests. He wasn't supportive of her passions. He didn't treat her well. And so my friend Jessica struggled. Should I say something to my friend Sophie? Um, should I warn her about what I see? Because on the one hand, if I say something, she might be mad at me, right? It, it might even ruin our friendship. But on the other hand, I love her, and I don't, if I don't say something and they do get married, it could be a huge mistake and she could really get hurt. And these are hard decisions, right? Maybe some of you have been in a situation like that. And, and the reason my friend Jessica would risk a hard conversation or even risk her friendship with Sophie was because she wanted to save her friend from the trouble that she saw coming. And, and that's the same reason that motivates Paul to say, hey, you've got to call this person on his behavior because what he's doing is awful, it's destructive, it's wrong, and if it continues, it could ruin his life and ruin his soul. And if you just smile and pretend everything is okay, then you're copping out. And so address it with him. Listen to how Paul puts it in verse 5. Hand this man over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord. Now, what in the world does Paul mean here? It's strange language. It's extreme language. But the part that's clear is the end, the purpose of it all. And that's that this man might be saved in the end. 
Again, our goal, our motivation is redemption. Not self-righteousness, not a judgmental spirit, not punishment. No, it's restoration. That, that the other person might be saved. Now, how can this happen, hopefully? Well, Paul says, hand the person over to Satan. And best we can tell, probably what he means is, put them outside of the church community. Because for Paul, Satan's domain is the world out there. Um, while among the followers of Jesus, we are in Christ's domain. So this is probably just a way of saying, hey, this man isn't following Christ anyway. He's already chosen to opt out of Christ's rulership. So acknowledge that. Make it official. And what does Paul hope the result will be of doing this? The destruction of the man's flesh. Which probably means that hopefully this man will wake up and say, wait, I'm wrong here. I'm following my inner sinful urges. I'm following my flesh. I'm not following Christ. I, I'm, so I'm going to say no to my flesh. I'm going to stop letting it control me. And I'm going to say yes to Christ. I'm going to break off this relationship with this woman and come back and join the way of Christ again and come under his domain. Does that make sense? Okay, so getting practical, have you ever had to have a hard conversation like my friend Jessica did? Or have you ever had to call someone on something they were doing wrong? I have more times than I'd like. And Paul doesn't say this clearly in this passage, but Jesus says it elsewhere in Matthew 18. The first step in a case like this is always that you go to the person privately and you talk to them. Putting them outside the church community is the last drastic step when all else has failed. So anyway, whenever I've had to do that, to call someone on something, I try to say it like this. I care about you. And I know you want to follow Jesus and to be one of God's children. And I know God loves you as his child. But what you're doing is not the way Christ has taught us to live. It's not the way that God's children behave. And Jesus is trying to lead us all into life, into a good life, into redemption. But the way to redemption is not the way you're going. You're going the opposite way. You're choosing a different path. You're walking away from Jesus' redemption in your life. So please trust Jesus. You say you do, right? Trust that he loves you. Trust that he wants what's good for you. And stop doing what you're doing. Come back to him. Behave the way God, Jesus is teaching us that God's children behave. Okay. You got to keep moving. Um, second rationale that Paul gives for removing this man from their community. And that's the health of the community. And here Paul gives the analogy of leaven and bread dough. And this analogy comes from the Jewish feasts of Passover and unleavened bread. Every year at the start of these festivals, every Jew takes all the leaven out of their house and gets rid of it. And for a week or so, they eat matzah, unleavened bread of some sort. And then when the feast is over, they get fresh leaven for their baking and they start anew and they eat leavened bread again. 
And the symbolism of, of this is that the old leaven is like sin. It's toxic. It's unhealthy. And so it needs to be gotten rid of so that they can make a new start. Back in, in the Bible times, it was before you could just go down to the store and buy, you know, a pack of Fleischmann's uh, quick rising yeast, right? Whenever you needed one. And so the bread they baked was more like sourdough. What they do is they take a little dough, they'd let it ferment into a sourdough starter, they'd use it to bake, and before they pop their bread into the oven, they take a little bit of the dough, they keep that back as sourdough starter for their next baking. And so day after day, week after week, you're using this fermented starter that contains a strain of, of microorganism, right? That's what yeast is. And after a while, it's possible that the strain could get corrupted because we know about COVID, right? Microorganisms like viruses, they mutate quickly and some strains are more harmful than others. And so there's some thought that this could happen with the strains in your starter dough. And so once a year, you'd get rid of it and you'd start over fresh and healthy. And that's the analogy Paul seems to be giving in verses 6 and 7. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. And then Paul applies this principle not just to the case of this particular man and, and his incestuous relationship, but more generally in verse 8, uh, to all malice and wickedness. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So the second rationale Paul gives us is to get rid of what's toxic and infectious. So we as God's people can be healthy, clean, pure, and new. We all know the proverb, right? One bad apple can spoil the whole bunch. Negativity can spread, bad attitudes can spread, fear can spread, a habit of gossip can spread, and taking a really laissez-faire attitude toward sin can spread. And so Paul says, verse 7, don't let those things happen to your community because that's not who you all are. In the early 1800s, Friedrich Schleiermacher was a very influential philosopher and theologian in Germany. Now, you may never have heard of him, but trust me, he has had a huge impact on European culture and on Western thought. He was brilliant, he was learned, he was influential, he was popular. But the story is told that when he became an old man, his cognitive faculties were failing. And one day he was sitting and dozing um, on a bench alone in a city park. He dozed off and a policeman approached him, didn't recognize him, and figured he was a vagrant. So he shook him to, to wake him up and he asked, who are you? And Schleiermacher replied sadly, I wish I knew. He'd forgotten his own identity. And that's what Paul is trying to avoid with the Corinthian church and with us. That we forget who we are. Paul does not want us to forget. We are God's people. We have a calling. 
And part of that identity and part of that calling is that we're to live differently in this world. We're to reflect God's character and God's vision of the good life as we let Christ redeem us. And so we're to live and to relate in a healthy way. And that's why Paul says in verse 7, get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch as you really are. That's who you are. So live that way. We are to be a new, pure, healthy batch of dough, so to speak. A, a basket of crisp, fresh, fragrant, tasty apples, not a bunch of soggy, rotten, sickly ones that no one wants to eat. And Paul says this has to be maintained. And when something goes rotten, that has to be addressed so the infection doesn't get worse. Next slide, that leads to the, the third reason that, um, or sorry, the third question that we want to ask about this passage. What do we learn here practically about how Paul tells them to handle this situation? What specific guidelines does Paul provide? Well, let me mention five. First, if you, uh, or first I want to point out that Paul tells them to judge this man's behavior. He, he assumes this throughout. He says it specifically by way of a rhetorical question in verse 12. Are you not to judge those inside the church? Which seems like a contradiction if you remember back to chapter 4. Paul told them there in chapter 4, verse 5, do not judge anything. Wait until Jesus comes back. He'll take care of judgment. What gives Paul? Should we judge or shouldn't we judge? Which way do you want it? Well, the answer is it depends on what we're judging. Should we judge people's motives? Should we judge them as people? Absolutely not. That's what Paul was addressing in chapter 4. But should we judge, and we can go to the next slide now, should we judge people's behaviors? Sure. That's not the right slide, but I'm not sure why. Um, never mind. <laughs> I guess the slide's not in there. Um, we, we, so, judge people, judge motivations, no. Judge behaviors, yes. We can't help but judge behaviors. Is someone stealing from the company? Is... Um, Someone talking about a friend behind her back? Are they sexually harassing an employee? Those behaviors are wrong, and we should judge them for what they are. And they should be dealt with appropriately. We have brains. We have consciences. Of course, we should judge behaviors. But that doesn't mean we know people's motivations. Or, or that we, we know what inner demons or battles they're fighting. Or uh, that we know what we would do if we, we were in their shoes. So we can't judge people as whole people. And we can't pretend to know their motives. That's God's business. The only thing we can judge is clear behaviors or patterns of behavior. Second, next slide. Notice that Paul distinguishes in verse 9 and then in verses 12 to 13. He distinguishes between those who claim to follow Jesus and those who don't. Um, and I think, I think we want to go to the next slide here. 
No, I guess not. I feel like I'm, we've got a couple of missing slides. Oh, well, don't know where they went. Um, so Paul says, don't judge those who don't follow Jesus, those in the world. They're not under our jurisdiction. <laughs> Let God worry about them. They don't claim to follow our moral values, so it's not our business to judge them or to try to morally police them. Sure, they have sexual habits we might not approve of, or they might take God's name in vain in ways that offend us, or whatever. They don't know any better. Don't reject them, or judge them, or lecture them. Be good news to them. Love them. Show them God's grace. It's within the community of God's people, among those who follow Jesus, that we're all aspiring to live a certain way. We know we're God's children, and we know, hopefully, how God's kids are supposed to live. We're all seeking to grow as God redeems us and restores and transforms our lives. And so we have something to say about how each other is behaving and living. Then third, if we go to the next slide, notice Paul doesn't pin this responsibility only on the leaders of the Corinthian church. He makes it everyone's responsibility. Am I responsible for my brother or sister? Yes, Paul says, you're responsible for each other. Now, maybe leaders need to play a role in advising and coordinating, but this is everyone's responsibility. And the closer you are to a person, the more sense it makes that you're the one to talk to them. Then fourth, Paul addresses our attitudes. Paul says there's no room for pride or boasting in this. Verse 6, and especially listen to verse 2. And you are proud? <laughs> Shouldn't you rather have gone into mourning? If you have to point out a fault with someone's moral behavior, there's no room for pride in that. This is, has nothing to do with you being better or purer or more righteous. In fact, you should be sad you should be sorrowful that this is happening in, in your spiritual community and that it's affecting your brother or sister. You should be mournfully asking God for mercy and for his people and, and for the whole community and for the person that you might need to confront. This is something that should lead to sorrow, not to arrogance. And then fifth... Paul tells the Corinthians exactly how to handle the situation they're facing. As long as this man continues in this lifestyle, he can't be a part of their community anymore. Now, at this point, we have to remember that, that the Corinthian church's way of being church is very different from our church today. They met in homes, maybe 30 to 50 people together, judging from the size of homes at that time. They often ate together when they met. They celebrated communion together. They had a meal. They remembered Jesus and what he'd done. And also, they were the only game in town. You either belonged to this community or you didn't belong to Jesus at all. You couldn't go down the street and find another church. You couldn't stay at home and read your Bible and watch your favorite TV preacher. You didn't have a Bible. There was no TV. Back then in Corinth, you either follow Jesus and were part of the Christian community there, or you left Jesus behind and you went back to the world. Those were the only choices you had. And so as far as this guy goes, Paul's not necessarily saying don't talk to him if you see him in the street. 
Paul's probably not saying don't visit him individually or even don't have lunch with him. But what Paul seems to be saying is tell him that he can't stay part of you as a community until he stops doing what he's doing. Do it sorrowfully. Do it. Don't do it arrogantly, but do it. And hopefully he'll come to his senses and he'll stop what he's doing so he can come back and you can welcome him back with open arms. Okay, before we run out of time, I want to get to our fourth and final question, which is how do we apply this today? And here I want to state the obvious. Removing someone from our community and telling them they can't be part of us is harsh and it's painful. Not only for the person being removed, but also as well for many of those who love that person. And so like anything harsh or dangerous, like a sharp knife, a gun, a radioactive isotope, this has to be handled with great care and with safeguards. It can be easily abused and it can cause great damage. If we have the wrong attitude or motivation, if we don't understand the purpose we're doing it for, and if we don't do it with love and humility, love for all involved. Also, let me just say again that the Corinthian church was a very different church from ours, and Paul here was addressing a very specific circumstance in that church, and so that means we might, Paul might not want us to handle a situation we face exactly in the same way that he wanted them to handle that particular situation. So the best we can gain from this passage are some general principles. And, and then with God's wisdom, we have to figure out how to apply those to any situation we might face. And I've tried to give you a lot of those principles. Again, the, the rationale um, for, for acting, it has to be redemptive, restorative for the person and also aimed at the health of the community. And then the practicalities again, sticking to behaviors, not judging people or their motives, judging those on the inside, not those on the outside, and we've got to figure out what that means for us. Realizing that speaking the truth in love to a friend we see erring is everyone's job, not just leaders, being sorrowful about it, not prideful, and that in extreme cases, what we would be trying to accomplish when all else had failed was figuring out what it would look like in our context to say to someone, until you stop this behavior, you can't be a part of our community anymore. But please stop for the sake of your own soul and because we love you and we want you to stay a part of us. So question, what kinds of sins qualify for this kind of extreme action? I mean, we all sin, right? The church is a place for sinners. We're a group of people who, who, who know we need God's forgiveness. We know we need a Savior. We, we all slip up. We, we fall short in many ways. I do, you do. Well, interestingly, Paul gives us, near the end of the passage, two lists of behavioral patterns that call for extreme action. They're in verses 10 and 11. And the way Paul does this is by describing people who habitually engage in these behaviors. Paul's not talking about slipping up now or then and being sorry. He's talking about patterns of habitual behavior. 
Interestingly, the, the list in verse 10 is actually the very things Paul's going to address with the Corinthians in the upcoming chapters. Those who are sexually immoral, the greedy and swindlers, and idolaters, idol worshipers. We'll see these in chapters 6 to 10. Then in verse 11, Paul repeats these again and adds to the list slanderers and drunkards. So these two lists aren't identical with each other. In the first one, Paul's mostly poking at things that are actually problems in the Corinthian church at the time. And then he adds a few things as well in the second. So what all this suggests is that these lists aren't definitive or exhaustive lists, but rather they give us an idea of the sorts of behavior patterns that need to be addressed. And notice what all these behavioral patterns have in common. They are all hugely, um, wondering if we have a slide for this one. No, <laughs> where did all the slides go? <laughs> what these behavioral patterns have in common is they're all hugely damaging to relationships. In most cases, relationships with other people. In the case of idol worship, relationship with God. But these are the sorts of things Paul has in mind, habitual patterns of behavior that are very damaging to relationships. And I wish I had time to dig more into each one, um, but we're out of time. Um, but that being said, with, uh, with a number of these, we're going to go into more detail in them in chapters 6 to 10. Okay, heavy topic. We better pray. God, this important but difficult topic that Paul had to address with the Corinthians and that you're addressing with us, as this is God's word to us too, um, this is a hard, uncomfortable topic. And we realize it's, it's dangerous. It's dangerous to do nothing, and it's dangerous to do something. And I pray that when we need to confront a friend, or if we as a community ever need to confront one of us whom we love, that you would give us great wisdom, great love, and great humility to handle this well. That we would be healthy, and that each of us would be redeemed and saved, and continue on the good path that you have for us. Amen.